Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome to The Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and how it shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Keith Phipps, here with... Genevieve Kosky. Scott Tobias. Tasha Robinson. Here in the Next Picture Show, we believe that no film exists in a vacuum and that all culture is more interesting in context. So, every other week, we get together to talk over a classic film and consider how it relates to a current movie. This week, we look to the sky and consider if anyone else is out there, and if so, whether they might want to talk to us. Tasha, using verbal communication constrained by human perceptions of time and space, can you tell us what's in store for us tonight? Well, there are a lot of movies in theaters right now, but only one involves Amy Adams trying to talk to tentacled aliens from parts unknown. Adapted from Ted Chang's novella, The Story of Your Life, Denis Villeneuve's arrival imagines what would happen if visitors from another world arrived in the form of shell-shaped monoliths and just kind of, you know, hung out and hovered over 12 spots around the globe. Adams plays a linguist enlisted by the U.S. government to try and figure out what the visitors want, with some assistance from a scientist played by Jeremy Renner and a sympathetic army colonel played by Forrest Whitaker. We didn't have to think too long to find a pairing for this film, which has a lot in common with Contact, Robert Zemeckis' 1997 adaptation of Carl Sagan's novel of the same name. Both focus on the difficulty of communication between different worlds. Both feature determined female protagonists who have to surpass the expectations of their mostly male co-workers while taking tremendous risks. And both are about the inward journeys involved in looking to the stars. There are other similarities, too, including extremists who use violence in an attempt to sabotage scientific efforts. Yet after a certain point, the resemblances break down. Zemeckis and Villeneuve tell similar stories, but they tell them quite differently. Zemeckis is working in the form of a large-scale blockbuster, complete with satisfying twists and turns. Villeneuve takes a moodier approach from the beginning, emphasizing the often fragile emotional state of its protagonist. Yet despite these different approaches, they end up overlapping quite a bit. Contact becomes an emotionally gripping movie, and Arrival is, in its own way, just as thrilling. So please join us as we talk about two movies about talking to aliens, and how what we choose to say reveals something about ourselves. Come on. Norad's not tracking any snoops in this vector. Shuttle Endeavor's in sleep mode. Okay, point source confirmed. Whatever it is, it ain't local. Position? I checked into parometry somewhere in Lyra, I think. Uh, Vega? Can't be. It's only 26 light years away. Hey, what's the peak intensity? Coming up. Vega. Vega, man. Handed a bunch of times to Arecibo. It was negative results, always. Got it. Reading over 100 jet skis. Jesus. Pick it up on my... Carl Sagan's profession was science, but his real calling was as a communicator of ideas. 
specifically this idea. The universe is grand and wondrous, and we should attempt to understand it with a sense of humility and awe. His work as an author and TV host should be seen as an extension of this. Sagan had already received a modest amount of fame even before he hosted Cosmos, A Personal Voyage, his 13-part PBS series from 1980 dedicated to exploring our universe and the immutable laws that bind it together. After that, Sagan became the face of science for many, an enthusiastic explainer of everything from pulsars to the theory of relativity. Contact, the film version of Sagan's 1985 novel, ends with a dedication to Sagan, who died during his production. But it's the film itself that serves as the best tribute to him, his career, and his desire to communicate with the world. Born to parents of modest means in Brooklyn, the young Sagan was a fan of science fiction, which became one gateway for an interest in science. He had a lifelong interest in the possibility of contacting intelligent life elsewhere and became a supporter of SETI, the broad term applied to searches for extraterrestrial intelligence. Contact dramatizes one possible outcome of that search, a kind of answered phone call picked up by Jodie Foster's Ellie Arroway, a true SETI believer who has to overcome skepticism, then opportunism, then political persecution to pursue her attempts to communicate with the extraterrestrial forces. Always interested in the cutting edge of visual effects, Zemeckis opens the film with a remarkable shot that slowly pulls back from Earth on a journey to the farthest reaches of the universe. We hear a broadcast of human history receding through the decades, then falling silent as our planet, then our solar system, then our galaxy fades into the far distance, only to open out into the eyes of young Ellie. A fitting opening for a film about our ability as individuals to understand the vastness of existence, and for one about extremes, particularly the extremes of science and religion, and the way they loop back around and meet. Contact is not a subtle movie. It gives itself over to the detailed explanation of big ideas and introduces hissable villains to stand in the way of those ideas. But it's an effective and ultimately moving movie, thanks to Zemeckis' ability to package those ideas into a multiplex, friendly form, and especially Foster's remarkable performance. Like Cosmos, it's a user-friendly introduction to the profound vastness of time and space, a chance to contemplate our place within it, and a charge to continue on Sagan's mission to understand it. We'll talk about that mission and more after the break. The president made a brief statement calling the message from Vega one of the most stunning insights into our Attendance at religious services has risen a dramatic 39% in recent days. As police and three German armed divisions clashed with neo-Nazi protesters. So it turns out there's life on other planets. Boy, this is really going to change the Miss Universe contest, don't you think? I mean, gee, we're going to have to... Health officials from around the world are concerned that the message from Vega might trigger a rash of mass suicides, not unlike the recent cult deaths near San Diego. Even a scientist has to admit that there are some pretty serious religious overtones to all this. So let's just talk about this movie in, in broad terms. I think we all saw it when it first came out. What was it like to revisit it, you know, almost 20 years later? 1997, I guess that's, what, 19 years ago. I was a pretty hip dude back then. <laughs> Uh, I remember it finding it uh, tacky and emotionally broad on first viewing, uh-huh. uh, though I think that may have been colored by my conviction post Forrest Gump that Robert Zemeckis had become a skilled uh, technician with a sentimental streak. What kind of flannel shirt were you sporting at this time, and, and how thick was your goatee? <laughs> I, I probably wasn't even capable of growing a goatee, even though I was well into my 20s. Anyway, I mean, just imagine that the hippest person you've ever seen that was me. But this time... I should say I, I was really caught up in, in the Spielbergian craft of the film, Jodie Foster's performance, and I think a fairly complex look at the relationship between faith and science, the tensions within that relationship. You know, stories of space travel often have us thinking about creation and about our place in the universe, and so they naturally bring us back to this question of God and how he might 
figure into it. And I think Contact, you know, for all of its flaws, considers those ideas pretty deeply. I know this movie really well. I've seen this movie a lot, and I'm not really quite sure why. I I did see it in theaters when it came out, but I was like the hippest 12-year-old you'd you'd ever (laughs) met at that time. So, you know, perhaps I wasn't quite as critical of it then. But I've always really liked this movie, but I've never really had to ask myself why until this viewing. And I think you kind of touch on it in the keynote, Keith, just like the uh, the confidence of the filmmaking and the performance just really sells uh, what could have been kind of a, I mean, it is kind of a silly movie in, in some ways, but I think it, it sells it. And I it also, I think, holds up visually really well for uh, yeah. for something that was so kind of cutting edge on in terms of CGI at the time. And that is certainly not always the case with things that were cutting edge in the in the mid to late 90s. So it mostly holds up. Um, there are some insert shots of Bill Clinton kind of matted over yeah. uh, existing characters. Yeah. Well, yeah. the well, no, what was controversial was um, the speeches of him cut completely out of context yeah. that made him look like he was participating in the film. Um, that that whole thing became kind of an interesting case. And it just seems like Zemeckis has been at the forefront of uh, more of those lawsuits than most. Well, he, he does like to replicate humans in a, in, mm-hmm. in a way. And I think those uh, tend to not always hold up and maybe come under closer scrutiny than something like that opening shot that Keith mentioned, which I think is still incredible to this day. Yeah, that one was that was really striking. And the the effects of the, the giant alien contraption, I actually thought were pretty cool. But one of the things that struck me most on this rewatch was just seeing Jodie Foster at this age again when her like her performance was very different, her persona was very different. She's kind of aged into this very intense and and lonely and honed down figure who kind of tends to play these really emotionally drawn, exhausted roles. And there's some of that here. I mean, you can see the character is meant to be emotionally exhausted at various times. And you can sort of see the roles that she's going to take and kind of where her career is going to lead. But you can also kind of see the the warmth and cheer of uh, some of the earlier phases of her career. This feels like a really transitional role for her and one with more range than a lot of the things she's done later in her career not necessarily to that i have a problem with those roles it's just very different every time she she like puts on a huge grin here over something that happens i kind of have a, a warm fuzzy of <laughs> oh judy foster happy yeah I, I i was struck by uh especially her playing ellie at her youngest because the story spans several years mm-hmm. you know when we first see ellie she's probably like grad student you know maybe early mid-20s well, adult ellie, yeah, yeah. as opposed to well we're right, right. yeah i'm not i'm not talking about jenna malone as uh, as baby ellie <laughs> but uh first time we see adult ellie like she just exudes this like youthful enthusiasm that she kind of sheds as the movie goes on and as she gets older and as the character uh, has to deal with more and more stuff <laughs> well, it, it kind of belies her job because until stuff happens all she's really doing is just scanning around li- listening to nothing and so you have to wonder uh what that animating force is that that compels her to do what for i think anyone would be here, the here. most tedious I'm, work I'm, imaginable. I'm gonna spoil it for you it's her dad <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's you know i was thinking though i was thinking if you weren't a true believer and and you didn't weren't an ambitious person this would be the sweetest job ever you know you're yeah. in a warm climate you're just kind of laying around all the time with headphones on, on the hoods of cars yeah. there's there's something weirdly hippie-ish about the fact that she does that not in a lab but kind of lying in a, on a car out mm-hmm. in the well, yeah there is that one point where william fickner's character calls her like the queen of the desert or something like that you know like there there's definitely uh the suggestion 
that eyebrows are getting raised in her direction for that behavior. Yeah, I mean, it's a fanciful field. I mean, you know, waiting around or trying trying to make contact, which which I think many would feel is an impossible or near impossible thing to ever happen. Including many on screen. And mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm in James Woods' camp this whole movie. I'm just like I'm against everything. Uh, Keith, we didn't even get to ask you the question that you asked the rest oh, of yeah, us. No, oh, I, I like this movie. I, I like it quite a bit. And I visited a couple of years ago when I when I did the whole Jodie Foster filmography thing for, for the <laughs> you did. So, Yeah, oh, man. Yeah, no. I mean, it's it's a it's one of I think it's one of her best performances. And I you know I appreciate the way it, it was a big summer movie. It was a big summer event movie, and it works as such. But it's also very thoughtful. Has a lot of ideas. I, I think the flaw of this movie is it is very eager to just like let's talk about this now and here's a character who represents this but um it's it's graceful in the way it does it and Zemeckis is uh, you know, for one of the most successful filmmakers of all time in many ways and also I think he's perpetually underrated I mean he's a very good stylist there's a lot of things that could have been very dully executed uh here that, that he does with a, a, some graceful camera work and some really interesting uh approaches to it and, and uh no it's it's a, it's a good movie I was happy to revisit it I've always kind of thought of him as the less cautious James Cameron. He kind of has that that habit of like constantly wanting to push the technological envelope. But whereas Cameron goes away for 10 years and then comes back with some groundbreaking thing that he's been working on for 10 years, Zemeckis was reliably putting out a film every year or so. And a lot of the special effects that he pushed in his movies were groundbreaking, but also just in some cases not quite there. Like Death Becomes Her. You're thinking of that. I love that becomes her. But in terms of the effects are pretty are pretty great. The effects are kind of rock. I I, not to get too off track. I didn't like that movie at the time, but I revisited it recently, and and I actually has grown on me quite a bit. But the effects are some of them are amazing, and some of them are are not. Well, same thing with uh, like Back to the Future Two, where he's got uh, Ersatz, Crispin Glover, and Mm. Michael J. Fox playing all the roles and, and matted in together. It was so important for him to create that shot that it's like he's not actually paying attention to how awful the acting is in that sequence Mm -hmm. where he's sitting around the breakfast table with his family. And in Forrest Gump and here, it's kind of the same thing. It's so clever that he's got Bill Clinton sitting there next to James Woods in a briefing that I'm not not sure it entirely occurred to him that the shot doesn't quite match. Mm -hmm. So I feel like there's a lot of that in Zemeckis' filmography. Where There's also the sidetrack where he's doing that motion capture animation uh, almost exclusively for a while there. Yeah. See, I'm telling you, anytime he messes with humans, you know, trying to digitally manipulate humans, it's it's not so good. He loves working with digital and so he does but he does I think subtle things that maybe we don't pick up on as much. I mean, he was I remember talk, he talked to me about, about, the, about the film Flight and and Flight he was saying he was saying there's so many effects that he's using that nobody even knows he's mm. he's doing. He's just he he working with digital and manipulating the image that is something that he does you know, by rote now that is part of his uh, toolbox as it were. But the nice thing about Zemeckis to me beyond the technical is that he's a very rangy filmmaker because he's done a lot of like screwball comedies. He's done used cars, you know, he's, he's done, um, Roger Roger he's done, right, exactly. And then he, then he can do films with more you know, gravitas. He can do flight. He can do the walk, which I thought was, really good and nobody, nobody saw. saw it yeah so i don't know if we're getting sidetracked here but the thing about well, I, I, I will say a, i did want to ask about how it fit into his filmography yeah. it's not it's not a film that he set out to make either at one point george miller was supposed to direct it mm. at one point uh, roland joff was supposed to direct it before oh his career fell off a uh, fell off a cliff uh, i wouldn't whatever. mind seeing george miller's uh, yeah i'd be yeah. very curious about that i can't I, I mean i'm sure it would be less sentimental and mawkish but i also can't quite imagine it being this humanist mm-hmm. well do you, so you saw lorenzo's oil didn't you i did <laughs> okay. What are you laughing about? That, that 
movie is amazing. Uh, now, now we're getting sidetracked. Okay, yeah. <laughs> all right, but that's, uh, that's off the. All right, well, path. once we get once we get on our George Miller show, I, I'm, I'll I'll take you to task for that because I love Lorenzo Zorro. But Contact, I will say, I, I I think you could, other than the computers being a little bit on the aged side, uh, the effects hold up quite well. Mm-hmm. I mean, it is a very very slick, state of the art piece of filmmaking. And the the balance between science and religion as a question. This just mm-hmm. this seemed like such a a strange movie to get into the philosophical idea of God and in the end to neither fully dismiss it nor embrace it. Given the place that Christian movies have come to now where they're so bald and overstated and they're their own industry, the idea that this – I mean this is sort of a hybrid between today's Christian movies and an action blockbuster. But it's one that treats religion respectfully without necessarily entirely tipping its hand. I just find that so interesting. I got one for you. What do you got? Occam's Razor. You've ever heard of it? Uh, Occam's Razor sounds like some slasher movie. No, Occam's Razor. It's a basic scientific principle. And it says, all things being equal, the simplest explanation tends to be the right one. Makes sense to me. All right. So what's more likely? Thank you. You're welcome. An all-powerful, mysterious God created the universe and then decided not to give any proof of his existence. Or that he simply doesn't exist at all. And that we created him so we wouldn't have to feel so small and alone. I don't know. I couldn't imagine living in a world where God didn't exist, you know? I wouldn't want to. How do you know you're not deluding yourself? I mean, for me, I'd need proof. Proof? Did you love your father? What? Your dad, did you love him? Yes, very much. Prove it. It's interesting that the conclusion it comes to more or less is that science and faith can coexist, can mm-hmm. live in the same world. And I mean, you have the personification of those two elements with Ellie representing science and Matthew McConaughey's uh, Paul, Palmer Joss. Palmer Joss representing faith. Wait, wait he's cracked this open for me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. And then they symbolically bang, which yeah. is what science <laughs> and faith should no, they do. No, li- they literally bang. <laughs> well, yeah, but they, they bang on behalf of symbolism, right, right. like so much of this. Their film. kid is going to be so balanced. <laughs> Given the corniness of the transition from childhood to adulthood in this movie, I am going to assume that they are going to, Lady and the Tramp style, have twins, a boy and a girl, and the girl's going to be all into (laughs) faith and the boy's going to be all into science. Uh, this is one of McConaughey's first big roles, too. Uh, one His thing, hair is so swoopy. It's so swoopy, and it's got that amazing scarf at the end. Yeah, I have to talk about the scarf. Oh, but, my uh, God. Did you see the uh, – I streamed this on Amazon, and the description of it on Amazon was just so clearly from the time, and it said something about, you know, exciting, bright new star McConaughey. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't hadn't fully sunk into the full McConaughey at this point. But I, I like well, thank his, goodness for that. I, I like him here. His character, to me, is really more of a weird construct than a fully fleshed out being he's he kind of appears and disappears from the narrative i mean he's basically the way i was thinking is like if he were in an m night Shyamalan film he'd be a ghost 
<laughs> right? That would be the big reveal, like the way he just kind of pops in and out. I mean, I do like that he sees science as this as, uh, this ticket to understanding the divine, you know, not as two things that can't be reconciled, science and religion. But he does see science and technology as a barrier to happiness, which is still relevant today, I think. Like, like a lot of his arguments that he is making, especially earlier in the film, um, about are we fundamentally more happy with technology? Like, that's an argument that yeah, we're still having yeah, today. I, you know, the technology is different, but the argument's the same. Yeah, I mean, they were nearly as deep in it as we are now. He's kind of interesting, too, because his career path kind of parallels Sagan's, where, where Sagan was denied tenure at Harvard, and Palmer Joss did not you know, take up the, the, the robe, and became more of a, as much a celebrity and advocate as someone who actually practices what he does, which is sort of Sagan's position in some ways as well. You know, hmm. uh, it's, That's it's, an it's, interesting it's, parallel. Yeah. yeah, I didn't think of that. One of my big gripes with this film is I kind of really dislike the structure of... Ellie, as an eight-year-old, is interested in one thing, and that thing is the thing that obsesses her as an adult. It's like people only have one thing in life, and that is that their thing for all of their life. Like, but her dad got her that telescope. The things I was interested in when I was eight years old are not the things that came to define my career and my life. But I really like the way McConaughey's character, you get to see him develop over time, and you get kind of that young version of him as a seeker with ideals but who hasn't necessarily codified what he believes or how he wants to enact it. And he comes across as kind of a seeker after the truth in youth. And then you kind of get to see like the more polished version who's not only gotten it all down pat, but figured out how to kind of monetize it and powerize it in a really interesting way. I got to push back against the gripe with with her as a kid. I mean, like, because I'm now imagining like this early section of the movie where she wants to be a veterinarian when she grows up. (laughs) And then, and then, and then later, you see her being interested in science. I mean, I think establishing that interest in the stars, establishing that she lost her mother and has this relationship with her dad, that she's kind of a stargazer. I mean, I think that's all emotionally resonant material that needs to be there and makes the whole thing more efficient. It is efficient. That's my problem with it. It's too efficient, and I understand. Two and a half hours long. I, I understand why it's structured that way. I just, it's so overplayed. It reminds me of the sequence in Tomorrowland where you get to see the young girl as a like a two-year-old and she's talking to her parents about the stars and what might be out there and she's like what if there's every fling out there (laughs) and it's like this horrible combination of baby talk and trying to establish the themes of the movie at the same time and it just gives me the heebies I sort of agree with you, but I also think like going back to the whole thing about, you know, the organizing principle of this movie being faith and science coexisting, like I think the loss of her parents really cements that obsession because we do have that little and caveat that this is admittedly cheesy, but it does work for me. We have that little thing with her asking her dad, like, can we talk to mom? And the idea that she is trying to reach her dead parents <laughs> to a certain extent, even if it's subconsciously. And, you know, we do kind of get into some ideas in this movie of to what extent this happened versus what extent it was something she convinced herself happened because it, it needed to happen, you know? It just, it's a lot. It's a lot, this movie, with with the idea of, of the intersection of faith and science and what you believe and how you act on that belief and to what extent you realize you're acting on that faith. I think it's also a case where the acting really get, helps push these things along. Jenna like, Malone from, is really good. Exactly. Jenna Malone's <laughs> really good, and, and, and young Jenna Malone is really good. Jodie Foster is great. And uh, David Morse is great as the dad, because that climax 
should be terrible. Yeah, really <laughs> the should. whole passing through a dimension and talking to your dead father, who's not really your dead father, he's an alien, but it's really sort of your dead father anyway. It should not work at all, but but it gets to me every time. It, it works for me. Man. It works. Yeah. For, it works for older Scott, but not younger Scott. No, right? it didn't work for me. No, okay, all right. right. Uh, no, I just, I, I just, the reason why the big scene on the beach didn't work. It's I mean, for one, it looks like you know Pensacola. So, like something you find on the side of a van, but it looks uh, like it looks kind of looks like Peter Jackson's heaven and and uh, exactly uh, yeah. right or Trapper Keeper, right? But that uh, was intentional. I, I read a, something about how Zemeck is like like the waves move backwards and the the trees like glow in a certain way, like it's supposed to look artificial. No, I I, I mean I suppose I get that, but I mean it's almost the thing where like I don't want to see the inside of the ship in Close Encounters either, and and I mean Stanley Cooper I think was able to imagine this other world in a compelling way but i i I usually think that's a pretty bad idea because everything is made to seem so small and we have this entire movie all of this this big expensive thing that's been built after one dude dies a bunch of one part of the thing you know explodes Uh, there's another thing that's built and i mean there's like a lot of i mean there's like i'm just saying you should you should write wikipedia i think you should do professional (laughs) summaries of movies all right i'm making a mess of this but what i'm saying is there's a ton of stuff that has to happen like the universe and nasa and all these resources have to get poured into this thing to happen and then the thing that happens is just is this small personal thing yeah but it's the it's the opening shot all over again i mean mean, there's no way to say without sounding cheesy but it's sort of like the biggest thing and the smallest thing kind of loop back together and they're the same thing because you can only experience the universe through your eyes and your own experience. So the vastness of it out there is, is limited to your perceptions, but it's also kind of what makes it wonderful in a way. Yeah. I mean, it, it just seems though it's, it's this huge contraption that serves a narrow purpose, but you see it uh, differently than that. <laughs> I'm just, I'm fascinated by my own emotional response to that sequence because there's just such a, a warmth and a relief in her seeing her father again. And if you think about it at all, it's kind of horrible because they're kind of trolling her. Like <laughs> she's, she misses him. She loves him and she gets to see him again. And if you think about it at all, no, it's, it's a mask on God only knows what <laughs> that doesn't want her to see its face. Cthulhu. And it's, it's, yeah, a, it's, it's a cephalopod with a like, dad mask. It's a cephalopod going, we figured this would comfort you. Yeah. 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 That would comfort me seeing my dead dad and not actually being able to talk to him. Mm. But it works for me so much. Yeah. Like, I always just, I feel this swell of, of emotion for it. And it, it makes me want to examine the uh, dichotomy between science and faith all over again. Because <laughs> scientifically, that's a horrible thing. <laughs> Faith-wise, she's in heaven talking to dad. So we kind of touched on this before. and It has to kind of serve two different masters at once. And one is the big summer blockbuster. And one is this very thoughtful, thought-provoking uh, ideas of Carl Sagan. Does that work for you? I mean, you, you get some very big blockbuster elements here, like like Jake Busey as, <laughs> as the... Uh, the bad guy. Why would anybody follow religious leader Jake Busey? <laughs> uh, John, John Hurt as the floating uh, billionaire, you know, sort of like, I don't know, Ted Turner in space or something. To, yeah, it's Ted know. Turner. That's right. it's, I think it's most like Ted Turner. Yeah, yeah, yeah but, definitely. Yeah. Um, Ted Turner would do something like that. Yeah. Elon Musk is like our yeah. Ted Turner, isn't he? Mm. Yeah, kind of. I could see to, uh, Elon Musk floating in space, uh, giving Jodie Foster money remotely, yeah. and having ninjas sneak into her house to dump computers there. Did any of that get in the way for you? Elon Musk did. 
I, I love John Hurt and uh, I love the fact that when she first encounters him, like he says something off screen and I was like, oh, John Hurt. Mm-hmm. But he's such a weird, like repeated DSS macho of a character. Hey, he just, he just shows up like, boink, here's money. Boink, here's power. Boink, here's another $300 billion machine that but, I pulled yeah. out of my but, butt. So the second machine, like he pointed it out to her and it, it's weird that they have that character pointed out to her, but like it, the, the U.S. government had made that second machine because he says, first rule of government spending, why make one when you can make two? And this whole thing about using the Japanese contractors to make like a private one where, you know, that they can keep under their control. So that, I guess, makes sense as an explanation why they had floating John Hurt be the one to tell her that doesn't make any sense to me. But I mean, he needed to come back in the movie because otherwise he's just this he's yet another M. Night Shyamalan ghost. Yeah. Yeah. And you need James Woods to be able to suggest that he played Ellie at the end. Like the idea that he orchestrated this whole thing for his own esoteric amusement. James Woods, he knows where his drinks are as an actor, doesn't he? <laughs> a hissable villain, indeed. Yeah. Mm. Although I, I found Tom Skerritt in this even yeah. more hissable. Oh, yeah. I mean, he just, oh, he plays into everything that's ever been wrong with the history of women in science and female discoveries getting overwritten by men who steal women's research, which is a really long history and a, a really fascinating one if you start reading about it. And it, it's it's really interesting to me the way he, he shows up and is charismatic and uh, just constantly elbows her aside. And the movie, a, a movie in the 1990s, like recognized that this was really a thing and really a problem and doesn't ever spell it out and explain it but just makes you feel for her so strongly yeah, it was weird that the movie spent so much time with her because he's the hero of the thing <laughs> well it, it well also like also, mash was a really funny comedy about i mean to get into the to get into the backstory of this like originally this was a treatment that carl sagan and his wife brought like they couldn't get it made so he turned it into a, a novel and then it ended up getting made. The production history of this thing is, is weird. But the fact that his wife is kind of his co-author on it, I think, could be read as informing that element of it. I don't know. I, I don't have any uh, interviews with either of them to back That's that up. But it, it does make me wonder. Entirely possible. I mean, it's a smart, too. I'm oh, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but, but just, just like, it sounds like they were... Typical man. I know. <laughs> no, but it's not that they had, they had uh, this idea of for a movie that kept getting changed by studios. So, like, you, you turn it into a novel and then you have something solid to it. So Jake Busey. <laughs> no, we just like let's just talk. I, I'm just curious about his purpose here. Is the idea that the super churchy type is is just does not want people to know any truth that might defy his own point of view of the on the world, or what? What, what do we just, or does the film even go that far? I think in a movie that this openly discusses religion and how people react to the unknown and that also presents like multiple versions of science there's there's science for the sake of discovery and then there's science for the sake of military gain and then there's science for the sake of forwarding your own agenda i think in the same way they wanted to be nuanced about religion and acknowledge that some religious people are fanatical and use their religion as a club to shut down other people's beliefs and that matthew mcconaughey's like open seeking after the truth is not the only form of religious belief. 
or Rob Lowe's politicized uh, <laughs> religious belief, which is another uh, type that we see. For like five minutes. Yeah. Too, right? Yeah. It's so interesting to drop Rob Lowe in there, but I don't know. That's about where his career was at in 1997, right? <laughs> <laughs> five minutes in contact. <laughs> yeah. A lot of time in the tabloids, not yeah. a lot of time uh, in the, on the screen. Kind of another one of the, the big summer movie elements to this film. There's a romance at the center of it that almost feels like somebody said, how can this be a story if there's no love? You know, how can this be? Or either that or, you know, what would make it more symbolic is if the faithy person and the sciencey person, as I said earlier, symbolically banged. <laughs> I don't think the relationship between the two of them works at all. And it, this is that's one of the things that's the biggest sticking point for me in this movie is they they meet when they're younger. They're kind of attracted. They have sex. And then she just shuts him down hard. Pretty much just, okay, that was nice, I guess. Bye forever. And then he carries a torch for her for years. He carries a compass for her. <laughs> oh, wait, no, I think she has a compass at that part. I lied. There's a lot of compass trading. <laughs> compass swapping. And I, I guess the fact that she hangs on to the compass indicates that it all meant something to her. But her behavior, her morning after behavior really doesn't seem to indicate that but it's it's like he carries a torch for her for years he shows up again he starts using his feelings for her to manipulate her career uh in ways that save her life but also before that part kind of holds her back and then at the end like they're happily together i the whole thing again there might be a like an emotional reaction to it that's like oh these nice pretty people belong together but like logistically speaking or just in terms of how they relate to each other like did that not bother anybody else i thought it was stronger in the earlier scenes yeah i i really liked their their chemistry in the first meeting mm -hmm. like that i mean it's matthew mcconaughey doing what he does so well being you know super charismatic verging on skeezy but not quite getting there you know and the, just like the, that's when i was talking earlier about seeing jodie foster playing this like kind of young enthusiastic version of ellie like that's where you, you just see it like in her like the way she looks at him i i really love the way the two of them uh bounce off of each other in those early scenes. I, I agree with you that it gets a little squicky in, in, in various ways uh, as, as, the, as the story progresses. But I, I like the payoff. I like the payoff of him saying, I for one believe her and like them kind of accepting each other's uh, view of the world. I like that he's not there in the final scene too. Like, like you know, it's, I think it's fine they got together, but it's ultimately not his story. It's her story. And, yeah. you know, his heart is her true north. Right. <laughs> Maybe this will make you feel better about it, because apparently one of the early iterations of this movie, a producer was very strongly convinced that uh, Ellie should have an estranged child. And that is uh, what, yeah. what she was looking to make contact oh. with. So um, be glad we didn't Bad have that. <laughs> but what, what, what do we think, though, of the scene where he totally kneecaps her in the in the hearing and yeah. costs her? Well, that's what I mean about saving her life by. Yeah by torpedoing her career yeah it's unclear to me at least and i have seen this movie many times and it's still unclear to me like what percentage of him does that so that because he truly believes that uh, someone who doesn't believe in god shouldn't be the first representative to another life form versus he doesn't want her to go away and come back in 50 years or whatever it would be because science you know i mean i think it's 
it's unclear to us in part because it's unclear to him. I don't think he could answer that question. And I actually think that that part of it is really neat because hmm. I think there is some part of him that just that didn't want to let her go. But I also think the performance in that scene where he tells her is so good because he's aware that what he's telling her is going to be devastating to her, mm-hmm. that it's probably going to end their relationship, but that he had to stand up for what he believes in. Mostly the part of the relationship that I find squicky is the way he's hung on to this what what was a very very brief and glancing encounter a long time ago and it seems to just be this weird pole star for him i just find that so strange but so many of the individual scenes that they have together i think really work yeah it just gets it just kind of gets lost in a much bigger story i mean that that seems to kind of be the recurring phrase we keep coming back to here is like i know it shouldn't work because of this reason this reason this reason but for this reason it it kind of works and i think that that kind of that applies to a lot of this movie I think there's a really interesting conflict here between writing that's kind of programmatic and a little over obvious and big ideas that are really interesting and scenarios that are a little questionable and really good performances and ideas that are a little clumsy and the fact that those ideas are playing out being actually pretty cool. Like there's just, there's a lot going on in this movie. And you at least have two cohesive elements, which, which are Jodie Foster's performance. We, she is who we follow through this movie. Um, except as I guess is Jenna, Jenna Malone as Jodie Foster and, and Robert Zemeckis's, just craft. I mean, I think it's, I think it's, it's a pretty, for all of these disparate elements, it is a much smoother ride because of those two aspects. I think that's a good place to wrap it up and we'll be right back with feedback. Because we're recording this back to back with our most recent episode on In the Mood for Love and Moonlight, we don't really have a lot of feedback to share. We did get one nice letter, however, in response to the mini episode Tasha and Genevieve recorded after the presidential election. Scott, would you like to share it? I would, though I would also like to note that Robert Zemeckis shot Back to the Future 2 and 3 back to back. So it's much like. (laughs) We have so much in common with him. This is an analogous situation. Where are our millions and millions of dollars? Does that mean this is the Back to the Future 3 of the Western? I apologize, everyone. (laughs) I get a flying train. But yeah, but this one has Mary Steenburgen in it, guys. There she is in the corner of the studio. Hi, Mary. (laughs) All right. Backslash tomfoolery. Let's. let's, uh, (laughs) (laughs) All right. JP writes. I feel compelled to reaffirm that the next picture show has been fostering empathy and tolerance since your first episode. You don't treat film interpretation as some sort of contest that needs to be won. What you communicate is tolerance, respect, and an interest in hearing others' points of view. Curiosity elevates communication, and you demonstrate a refreshing open-mindedness toward differing opinions. It's why I continue to look forward to new episodes, even if I have little interest in the film being discussed that week. Your open-minded approach keeps me open-minded about films I might otherwise shut out. You even extend this courtesy to your listeners. Most podcasts I listen to ask for listener response like a begrudging formality, whereas the four of you seem genuinely interested in hearing our thoughts, a genuine curiosity and outsider points of view. That's a very nice thing to say. It is very Thank you, JP. Although I would like to say that Scott does treat film interpretation as a contest that needs to be won. I do, I do. And I, and also, and also I, I only, I only pretend to be interested in what. No, no, no. Don't say this. Send us your feedback. We love it. I I joke. Of course we're, we're interested in where I think we're always uh, surprised and gratified at the depth of some of these letters. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I love it when somebody writes in a letter that, uh, like the the one about how the girl in uh, 
I don't breathe really needed to be thematically needed to be Rocky's daughter because it would be so cool for a list of reasons. Like when somebody brings an idea to me about a film that I've just seen that I didn't see. I mean, part of me is is jealous and furious because why didn't I have that idea? <laughs> but I, I mean, I love it. I love it when somebody tells me something I didn't know that changes my perception of something. Yep. And a week where we don't get a lot of feedback is a week that makes us sad. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. So send us I mean, it's, it's not your fault this time, guys. You have not actually heard the last episode. I mean, <laughs> we're, we're literally recording, recording this, this like 48 hours. <laughs> so we'll let it slide this time. I mean, we're all better into the dissolve. And, and one thing I miss is the comment section yeah. there, which was, which was so nice. And, and it was on a, a daily basis, exactly what Tasha was talking about. Like, oh, I wish I'd thought about that. That's a really interesting take on this. And I will say there is uh, some of that happening on the Next Picture Show Facebook page. We do get some great comments there responding to the feedback we post there. So if you haven't checked that out, please do. And please jump into the discussion. We like it. And when we post those letters, we post them pretty much unedited, but we always do cut the part at the beginning that always starts out, you guys are great. And then the part at the end that says, thank you for being so great. Um, we've, we did that at the Dissolve when we did the podcast there. We did it at the AV Club. Like we've always had sort of a blushing response to anybody complimenting us because uh, we're all a bunch of awkward nerds and because we don't want to look like we're praising ourselves. So we really debated over whether to do this feedback section. But I think in the end, we just all like the observation that, yeah, we want to hear from you. We would like more feedback. We would like to we would like this to be a conversation. Speaking of feedback, as always, we appreciate when our listeners share their thoughts and their recommendations. To reach us, you can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. We may feature your response on a future episode or post it on the Facebook page. And that's it for this episode of The Next Picture Show. In the second half, we'll turn our attention to Arrival and how it approaches the notion of making conversation with extraterrestrials. Then we'll talk about how it connects to contact. You'll also get to hear this. He's the one who has to say, you want to make a baby? Look for that later this week, or better yet, subscribe to The Next Picture Show on iTunes or your podcatcher of choice. Follow us at facebook.com slash nextpictureshow and follow us on Twitter at, at nextpicturepod so you'll always know when a new episode drops. Until then, keep watching the skies or listening to the skies or whichever.